The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a real virus called real lysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. I'm pleased to announce the return of sponsor company Noblis Health Corporation. Noblis trades on the Amex under the symbol HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Opinion editor Bob Lang will share his thoughts on health care in the U.S., and I'll offer my assessment of Greek cuisine and culture after a recent trip to the country for a couple of weeks. Before I went, I'd hear, aren't you worried about the bad economic conditions over there? Mayhem in the streets, so-called refugees from Syria, Africa, etc., etc. I guess I wasn't because I went. Others would say to me, you're going to love it. The food is incredible. Okay. I recall seeing those sun-swept White habitats overlooking the sea with blue skies, etc. Just a gorgeous sight. It can't possibly look as good as the photos. And exactly how good can their food be over there in Greece? Isn't it pretty darn good in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Northern California? How good can food actually be? I've had plenty of Greek food in the U.S. my entire life. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Every morsel of food, cooked or uncooked, is delicious. And unless you've been to Greece or maybe Italy, you as an American have never eaten real food. That's right, I said that. You've never eaten real food. Bread isn't fresh unless it's made on the spot, on site, at a restaurant, or a home. Fresh vegetables? When are vegetables delicious without being prepared somehow, a special way? Well, they are delicious and freshly picked in Greece flavor that you've never tasted before ever have you had an unsettled stomach frequently at home probably yes low energy probably yes a sugar headache from chocolate or ice cream or cake or anything sweet probably yes you'll have little to none of that in Greece the locals there know that their food is good but I'm sure they just take it for granted as much as we accept the cardboard that we eat here or maybe they don't take it for granted maybe they worship the art of cooking and growing food. Our normal food is awful, and their normal food is incredible. And it's not a big deal either way. We know no better or worse in either country until we leave it. When a Greek comes to the U.S., they notice how terrible food is here. And when we go there, we notice how great everything is. It becomes a topic of conversation. Americans bring it up, like I'm bringing it up now. Even the Greek restaurants in the United States are not delicious compared to the meekest sidewalk cafe in Athens, if there is such a thing as meek. Handmade yogurt on the spot, a normal thing. Pastry shops open past midnight in many places. What? Yes, 
That is normal. You're literally walking down a street in downtown Athens, and there's a beautiful, glorious, even large pastry shop with fresh pastries that you can eat late at night. My mouth is watering just remembering it. And it's quite normal. Food is celebrated as not just a necessity, but as a holy event and a hedonistic event simultaneously in Greece. And you eat it slowly. I'm a fast eater, usually looking just to get it over with and move on to the next life activity. And it was impossible for me to eat my food quickly in Greece. Why would you? You want to savor every piece of it. You want to linger over it. It brings a bigger smile to your face. Your body thanked you over and over again. I was having lunch with a Greek-Australian expatriate who had lived in the U.S. for several years. Los Angeles, to be specific. I remarked on how delicious simply everything was, and I wondered why out loud. His response? No hormone injections. Very limited use of pesticides, most being illegal, by the way. The soil is not treated, and it is healthy. Evidently, we have generations and generations of poor soil here in the U.S. Produce and big farm management in the United States that is adversely affecting our food supply and therefore our health. And perhaps the Monsanto haters have just cause. I've never been one to call out anyone, let alone Big Farm, or join a boycott, or even use this venue to espouse my dissatisfaction with a particular industry. I'm not sure that I'm going to start now, but the gentleman that I had lunch with in Athens is extremely well-known, highly educated, and very successful in business globally. The facts he espoused during this conversation were undeniable, including the mall culture created in Los Angeles that we are all drawn to. And in the area that I live... Somewhere in West Los Angeles, there are at least four large malls within a five-mile radius, not to mention scores and scores of strip malls, making up the landscape of what was once a gorgeous Los Angeles basin not far from the Santa Monica Bay. So what? So what? This mall culture extends eastward all the way to the Atlantic, and that's our country, a country of malls and strip malls and buy-my-stuff-now. We work all week long and flock to the malls on the weekend or after work to buy more stuff, missing many opportunities in this perfect weather climate we have here on the West Coast to sit down and have a beverage and a bite with a friend or a stranger, taking delight in every sip and morsel and the environment around us. No wonder there are so many empty souls in this city. And this is supposed to be a health-conscious area. Many of us on the West Coast, especially in California, are so-called fit. It's a thing. The rest of the country, but not all of it, is, um, excuse me, Fat. Yes, Americans are indeed fat. Greece? Not so much. The concept of health food is ridiculous simply because everything is healthy there. A business such as Whole Foods would be considered a joke, just like ketchup is. Yes, I'm ranting. I may even be raving. I'm ranting and I'm raving. I suspected that when I would return to L.A. from Greece, most food would taste like cardboard to me, and I was not wrong. My traditional haunts and the food offered me made me ill giving me headaches and an unsettled stomach upon my return, a not infrequent occurrence before I left the country, always not feeling up to par. You could taste the ensuing displeasure in advance. What can I do about it? Really? Import my own soil and grow my own food? Yeah, that's going to happen. I could move to Greece, perhaps. You know, I would do it just for the food, just for that alone. Oh, I'm reluctant to mention that I've been to Greece to people that I've run into lately here in the U.S. because I then feel impassioned to explain all of this to them all the time and every time.
and I tire of hearing my own rant over and over again. And the folks also asked me about the economic crisis and the refugee crisis and how that may or may not affect their own potential travel plans to the country. Well, things are cheap, very cheap, in Greece. On one occasion, a delicious dinner for seven for the equivalent of 50 U.S. dollars, and another dinner for seven or eight for near 80 dollars at very fine restaurants with a staff that is thrilled to get a 10% tip with incredible service each time. And keep in mind, it's not incredible to the local patrons. They expect it. It's part of the culture. It's incredible to us because we aren't used to getting either the quality of food or the service. And in most places, you get a free treat, whether it be a dessert, a pastry, a side dish, a beverage, whether you want it or not. It just comes. The staff wants to please you. They love their jobs and are happy to have them. Athens wasn't overflowing with so-called refugees. I didn't see them. Not the case in California, though. Yes, I'm sure the country is struggling financially, but I didn't see visible evidence of it. There was a sweet, happy tone all about the land. There's a police presence, but not obtrusive. The streets feel safe. Should you want to stay there long term? Well, I don't want to flood Greece with expatriates from around the world, but there is opportunity, although you better plan on having a revenue stream that doesn't come from the country itself. Yes, a great place for so-called snowbirds or those looking for a country retreat. I realize that I've left a great deal out, and I've not been specific highlighting restaurants, locales, or tourist attractions. All of the ancient Greek and early Christian sites were unexpectedly moving, and the art associated with it as well. And the music, well... You can just imagine, or maybe you can't. It's hard to be specific about these things. Besides, you have the Internet. You can find plenty of information, much more detailed than this rant. Just know this, whatever your friends and family who've been to Greece say about Greece is true. And you can't know the depth of this truth unless you go and experience it for yourself. Try it. Try it in June, September, or October, out of the season, but yet still Southern California-style warm. Treat yourself and your body to a healthy, fulfilling experience. Greece the birthplace of culture and philosophy and love. We could all take a lesson. I'm Ellis Martin. Find out a bunch more things to find out about at that guy's website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human rheovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much, Alice. If you don't mind, please give us an overview of Oncolytics Biotech. Well, we're a company that focuses completely and solely on treating cancers. So we're an oncology company in industrial vernacular. We're using a very interesting new method of treating cancers, which is to use a live agent, in this case a virus, to infect and kill tumors in humans. And we've treated a little over 1,100 patients to date, so that the program's getting quite mature. And part of that whole process has been to figure out which cancers are susceptible to this particular virus, administer the product most effectively, and how to integrate in what we've learned about how the agent works along the way. So that at the end of the day, you come up with a treatment that's based, like I said, on this live virus that will be focused on the cancers that it works best in. And I think we're actually getting a pretty good picture of all those factors, and I think we're getting targeted 
targeted very closely on the cancers we think we can make a difference in. There are many types of cancers, Brad. How can one proprietary type of technology, such as oncolytics relicensed treatment, address all of these different variant types of cancers? But the short answer is that no one agent can treat all of cancers. And the best one can hope for is that you can treat a reasonable percentage of each cancer. And I think in the case of real lysin, we're aiming to be able to do just that. There'll be certain types of cancers that we be able to treat more of and certain cancers that we'll be able to treat less of as a percentage basis. You know, for example, in melanomas, in the lab, all melanomas are exquisitely sensitive to real lysin. When you start treating humans and human patients, it's a little different than that. And it's mostly because the superficial lesions, the ones that are in your skin, aren't all that accessible to the virus. I mean, this is a, a live agent, it's a virus, and it's big. And for some reason, it just this virus doesn't penetrate the skin all that well. Now, that doesn't mean that the metastatic lesions, you know, liver lesions that you get from melanoma and things like that aren't treatable. But I think that's just an example about you have to, in some cases, you're only going to get partial treatment successes. But as you treat each different type of cancer, you learn more. And this may help you to effectively begin to treat types of cancers that you haven't really treated before, Correct. Absolutely. Much of what we learn from one cancer is transposable to treating another cancer and, and gives you an approach to treating a cancer. Again, I'll give an example. We discovered just recently, actually, that this particular virus will cross over from in circulation when we administer it into the brain, which is quite a novel uh, understanding. So it means we could treat certain types of brain cancers. We just assume we wouldn't be able to treat primary brain cancers, but it turns out that the virus actually crosses into primary brain cancers quite nicely. But what we were looking for was metastatic disease, and so from another indication. So it really gives you an opportunity to take information from one disease and treat another disease directly. The market has been favorable to biotech concerns, and there's certainly been an interest in oncolytics biotech. We've seen it here with this program and our audience. Do you attribute that to both the pervasiveness of cancer physically in our society, as well as the various stages of your research and the amount of patients you've already treated? Well, there was a huge amount of interest in oncology, so the treatment of cancer today. And it didn't always used to be that way. I mean, if you go back five or ten years, there was a lot less interest in that. And I think it's really two things. First is that cancer is still one of the leading killers of people in our society, unfortunately. And, of course, we're trying to all change that. But secondly, there's been some successes, unexpected successes from the magnitude of effect on people in the industry that has really raised the profile of the entire industry. And people are saying, wait a minute, that industry is making a difference, not going to make a difference, is already making a difference in cancer outcomes, and we should pay attention to it. So there's that kind of co-joined cancer awareness and the awareness of the progress that we're making. I think the level of interest in our project, which is using an oncolytic virus for treatment, is also going up rather dramatically. And I think it's due to two factors. The first is that in our area, we're expecting the first product approval of a virus to treat cancer, both in the United States, and that's Amgen's product called TVEC. The expectation is very high that both those groups will uh, approve that product, and that brings attention to the entire area of viral therapy. Secondly, specifically with respect to real lysin, people are actually beginning to see that we understand exactly how our agent works and how that is applied to specific cancers, and most recently, and we've talked about this, is multiple myeloma. And we have very good molecular evidence down at the cellular level in a body that real lysin is making a difference, and we actually understand how it does make a difference. So I think those two things are really making a big difference. Now, with a company such as Amgen making news and perhaps affecting your business, do you see any cross-pollination with that company or any companies like it? Are you perhaps also positioning yourself as a takeout candidate? 
I would expect that at some point, and that point in time might be sooner or later, one who has the idea when that might happen, that Encore's Biotech would be a takeover candidate by another party. Historically in biotech, a small entity like Oncolytics would form a, what we call a corporate partnership with a bigger entity where you'd stay independent, but you'd work together on developing your product, and they would provide resources and support in that and gain part or most of the rights to the agent. What we've seen is a shift recently to what most other industries are like, where those companies are buying other companies rather than partnering with them. And so I would expect that somewhere uh, in the future, uh, Oncolytics would be a, a takeover target, assuming that our, you know, our agent continues to develop as it does. So it's definitely a goal of yours. People tend to forget is that we're in business for our shareholders. I mean, we're in business to provide to those people who have supported us financially you know, a return on their investment. And one of the best ways and biggest ways of giving people a return on their investment is to be acquired. You typically get acquired at a premium to what you see on the screen as a trading price. You know, that's in the best interest of shareholders generally. If you have a belief that the company will appreciate more than that as an independent entity, then you fight, you know, a takeover attempt. If you believe that that is a fair representation of a future value, then you go along with the takeover attempt. The nice thing about being taken over as a public company is that, I mean, you take it to your shareholders to vote on. They can vote to be bought or they can vote against being bought. And, and that's the ultimate in democracy is like we're asking you to tell us what you want us to do. You, know, you can vote either way and majority rules. That is a really powerful tool in public companies today to be able to do that. Do you see something like that happening during the next five years? I think there's a very reasonable probability that they'll be purchased by another entity in the next five years. Now, notwithstanding that, we've structured to be operate independently, permanently, as it were, so that if, you know, if that event does not happen, I would expect that five years from now, Oncolytics would be a profitable company and growing and adding other products to its portfolio and just developing a small to medium-sized uh, profitable pharmaceutical company is. You were recently in San Francisco for the Bioinvestor Forum. What are people asking you when you're one-on-one with these investors or potential investors? It's interesting that where they're from geographically often determines what kind of questions they ask. U.S.-based shareholders today are asking a large number of questions about our multiple myeloma program. It's certainly the most topical program on our list at the moment in the United States. And I think that's because we just have the best quality of clinical data at all levels out of our current portfolio on that particular agent. It's an disease that needs extra attention to it. If you were talking to a similar group of people in Canada, and there were quite a few Canadian investors at that that meeting, uh, what they're asking me about is our colorectal study in Canada. We finished enrolling a randomized colorectal a phase two study earlier this year in Canada, and so everybody's eagerly awaiting the data on that. And I think part of the reason for that is that the resources, the funding for that particular program all came from Canadian sources. I mean, that was a financing done in Canada that was done to support that program. And so you really do see differences of focus based on where people are and what they've done with the company in the past. What's on deck for the company in the next 6 to 12 months? We currently have five randomized phase 2 studies ongoing, and four of which have completed enrollment, and the fifth, which is a breast cancer study, is just about to finish enrollment. We're expecting preliminary or later than preliminary data out of all five of those studies over the next calendar year. That's a lot of information in a very short period of time. In addition to that, we just recently announced our first clinical study in pancreatic cancer where we're using one of the new drugs and a new drug class called the checkpoint inhibitor in combination with Realysin. Really, our first clinical study where we're actively modifying the immune system in two different ways. Realysin modifies the immune system and a checkpoint inhibitor modifies the immune system. A lot of people are very interested in the results of that. 
Breast cancer patients are really a large segment of the afflicted population. So this is a very important study. Yes, I mean, breast cancer is certainly, uh, you know, one of the leading causes of death in women. The other is another reproductive cancer, which is ovarian cancer, both of which have very high death rates over the long term. And there's been a lot of progress made, but still, unfortunately, the final result is that. And so we're having a lot of attention on that particular study by women's groups in particular. But, you know, of course, the families of women are also very interested in that particular uh, study. And we're quite excited about the prospects of getting you know, clinical trial data on that particular cancer. Potentially, if you're successful, we can more or less do away with these chemo and radiation treatments that are so hard on the body. Well, that's the goal of our agent and, to be honest and fair, many of the agents that are under development today is to try to reduce our dependence on older line chemotherapeutics and radiation. I mean, there's a very high percentage of patients still get radiotherapy today. It's, it's depending on who you talk to, 70 or 80 percent. And it would be wonderful to be able to reduce the use of that or reduce the dosage of that and some of the chemotherapies as well. And some chemotherapy is relatively benign, but it's still hard on a person. But some of the old-line chemotherapies are, are just horrible, horrible on patients. And the thought we might actually be able to eliminate the use of those and still improve outcomes is really quite important. Well, Brad, thanks so much for the conversation today. I appreciate you joining me on the program. Oh, well, thank you very much, Al. It's, uh, as always, a great pleasure to talk. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech, trading in the U.S. under the symbol ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for an interview with Ken Eford of Noblis Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange's HLTH. Noblis owns and manages ambulatory and acute health care facilities to deliver health care services. Their focus is improving access to care and patient outcomes by providing minimally invasive procedures that can be performed and low-cost outpatient settings. They utilize innovative direct-to-patient marketing and proprietary technologies to drive patient engagement and education. Noblis owns and manages seven surgical facilities in Dallas, Houston, and Scottsdale and has contractual partnerships with six other facilities in Arizona, Oregon, Michigan, Minnesota, Tennessee, and New Jersey. Ken Eford oversees business development for Nobilis. How would you describe your position at Nobilis? My legacy of operations, I was previously the COO, to currently helping with M&A and looking at launching new verticals like in the ancillary space. How has business development with regard to Nobilis increased revenue during the past 12 months? In multiple ways. We've seen our growth within the company be one of organic and through acquisition and through de novo. Organically, we've grown as we've brought new facilities online, as well as reinvigorate past relationships with physicians, as well as through acquisitions like we received in Q4 of 2014 with APHIS and, and enhancing in a very robust marketing program, as well as de novo with the launch of our intraoperative monitoring and first assist program, all of which have made a, a significant impact to revenue as well as earnings. But what else is unique about Noblis as compared to other healthcare-related companies of this kind? in the space. And we are very good operators, but where we're different 
from our competitors is our marketing abilities. We have a class marketing division that has allowed us to go out and directly source patients and surgeries for our facilities and our network of physicians. That's a key differentiator. Also, our ability to have innovative products within the market, whether they be a surgical technique, a physician service, or a complement of services like we've done with the ancillary services. The beauty of bringing those verticals online is it allows us to enhance the patient and provider experience while increasing our continuity of care. So we make sure that the surgeon has the anesthesia provider that they know and love, the IOM tech that they're comfortable with, the first assist that knows their movements and their, and their behaviors. So we have increased clinical outcomes as well as clinical operations or efficiencies. We have shorter cut-to-close times because of these enhancements. Typically, surgeons aren't schooled in marketing. This is something that they are not taught. So really, when they align themselves with Nobilis, they can, in many instances, dramatically increase their own revenue stream. Yes, sir, that's absolutely correct, and that's to our benefit. Direct-to-consumer marketing in the medical space historically, or years ago, was considered taboo. It was predominantly around the dental and plastic spaces, but as we have found that patients are playing a more active role in their medical decision-making, they are out there seeking information, and with the Internet, they have plenty of it to digest. But what that provides us is real opportunity to interject our messaging and direct them into our system. Now, when we have surgeons who try to do marketing, they try to do online and have their website, often they fail because they lack the proper infrastructure to properly execute on any of those media dollars spent. So we have a desire by our physician partners or or those within our facilities, but yet they have an inability to execute properly. So that when we bring to them our marketing products, it's with open arms that's received. I know you're quite successful with your marketing strategies in attracting these types of professionals. Are professionals also reaching out to you due to your across-the-board marketing efforts? That was one of the positive side effects of us running Direct Response TV and online as we were getting out there in front of the surgeons in our market and the associated clout that came with it was not only surprising but impressive. We're now, we're no longer having to knock on doors. We still do identify key surgeons and seek them out, but we're also having surgeons contact us wanting to be a part of our marketing system. Give us an overview of your management team if you don't mind. Our management team comes from several different breeds and ideologies, if you will, and pedigrees. We have a great depth of knowledge from the legal front, the accounting and finance, the marketing, and clinical operation. And what that has allowed us to do is have such great depth on our bench that we can execute and grow as we have experienced over the years and continue to grow. And as we continue to enhance our operations and grow within different verticals, we'll allow our management team to continue to be more specialized as we bring on additional talent. Ken, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. Thank you, sir. I've been chatting with Ken Eford. Ken oversees business development for Noblis Health Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol HLTH. Find a link to the Noblis Health website on the homepage of ours, ellismartreport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. Now here's Bob Lang. The views expressed in this segment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Ellis Martin Report, its sponsors or affiliates, 
the DNC or the RNC or the United States government. In fact, the commentator isn't even sure they're entirely correct or his own personal views. My wife made me put that last part in. I believe in this country, the system of government as the framers framed it, and the people of the United States who are the most productive and generous people I know. But then, I don't know all of them. So let's begin. As I investigate historical documents, I see that our system of government is based on three equally culpable branches with specific purposes. The executive, which is the president and the administration, the legislative, which is the two houses of Congress, and the judicial, the Supreme Court of the United States. The Congress makes laws and spends the money with the okay from the president. If the president doesn't agree, he can kill the law or spending, but the Congress can override the presidential disdain. But it takes a lot of folks to do it. The Supreme Court, well, their job is to interpret the laws written by Congress against the Constitution. Yes, no, unconstitutional, constitutional, that sort of thing. Nice, clean, three branches, or legs, three legs. That is, until we add the fourth and fifth legs, the two parties, and their operational soldier, the lobbyist. The parties themselves are made up of the constituent contributor, the institutional contributor, the volunteers, and what I like to call the Politburo. The Politburo takes money, and I mean lots of money, and manpower from the contributors and uses it to send lobbyists to make friends in Congress by making contributions to congressional candidates and officials and, quote, helping them, unquote, to write laws. So let's recap. The contributors send money to the parties, and then the parties send money from the contributors via their lobbyist army to Congress while helping them write laws and seeming to argue about them when they pass. Laws like exemptions from regulation to friends, or stiffer regulations to opponents. The left and right Congress members make deals with friends to get the requested laws passed. Now, these laws benefit large industries and organizations mostly, from the Sierra Club and Berkshire Hathaway to General Electric and ExxonMobil, all the way down to the League of Women River Wideners, wherever they are, and occasionally average people. But the lobbyists have been really busy in certain industries. In America, we have a healthcare system only slightly less complicated than a space shuttle wiring diagram. It starts with people who want to protect themselves from ridiculously high costs by buying insurance against $300 aspirin tablets. They pay anywhere from $200 to $1,000 a month for coverage. But if your monthly is low, then your deduction, a clause in the policy that says you pay all costs for certain expenses before the insurance kicks in, and then perhaps 70% or more of the balance to a set limit per occurrence per year, but only on stated expenses and only when provided by certain providers, Otherwise, we go to another pay scale that can be as little as zero, even though you're paying your premium and co-pays. Are you with me so far? Well, we've got a little farther to go. Uh, co-pays. They're the amount you pay to health care providers that the insurance company won't pay, but you will. Then there are the prescriptions, which can be as little as zero or possibly as much as $19,000 a month. <laughs> yes, that's above the 200 to $1,000 per month premium you pay into the risk pool. So you pay a monthly premium, say $500, co-pays of $35 a visit, and your doctor can prescribe you a prescription that could cost you $10 a month. If this is you, you're paying about $3,535 a year. 
plus your deductible of $2,500 to $6,500. God help you if you have cancer or heart issues. Those numbers will soar. And Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, only helps with the cost of the premiums. The goal was to keep Americans from spending more than 7% of their income on health care. To stop insurance companies from denying policies for pre-existing conditions. And make it affordable to have coverage. But it doesn't work. Partially because of insurance companies' ability to make an end run or run around. This may be higher co-pays or limited resources for certain policies. Additionally, if you don't sign up or have private coverage, the United States government will take 1% of your annual income as a tax for not having health insurance. Now, the health care providers themselves are also under the thumb of the health care insurance policy as well. The insurance companies want the providers to use certain subcontractors, certain hospitals, and certain drugs, even though the provider, your doctor, may feel otherwise. Non-compliance could mean non-payment or removal from the pool of acceptable providers, a loss of customers to the health care provider's business. The squeeze is on, so turn your head and cough up. How did our system get so complex, so lost, so dysfunctional? Well, remember our discussion about how America was structured with three legs plus two, the two major parties being leg four and five? who are innocently just trying to tend to the needs of their contributors. These party lobbyists from the two parties help write or influence the laws regulating health care. And Congress and state legislators, who function like mini-Congress in each state, get convinced to pass them. That's why you can't buy policies across state lines. And it's illegal for Americans to order drugs from any pharmacy located outside the United States, including Canada or Mexico. That's why your doctor may look at the floor when discussing your options for treatment. Some would argue the power vested in these insurance companies by Congress have the power of life and death on policyholders based on coverage and provider control. Well, do they? Okay, Bob, we get it. We pay the premiums. We see the changes since the days of house calls. So now what? What do you see as the solution? Well, this is a rant. It doesn't have to have a solution. It's just a rant. But since you asked so nicely, here goes. Vote. Vote. Vote with care. Get active in politics, if only as an email ranter or suggestion maker yourself. The two parties have wrested control from the elected Congress by being the funding mechanism for candidates from local sheriff and state offices to the President of the United States. They have effectively shut out any opposition by controlling election debates and media topics, again, by controlling the flow of money from contributors on the left and right. The solution should be as simple as writing legislators to let them know we expect results that are focused on helping citizens rather than corporate or special interest group lobbyists. Unless, of course, those interests happen to coincide with the average American citizen. And that's where things get weird. It should be as simple as writing or calling or emailing your local state legislators and U.S. Congress members. And then, seeing results that work. You know, in the 50s, Democrats and Republicans used to sit next to each other and, and talk in the cloakrooms, and not anymore. So it's up to us to give them a little prod in the rear. I've really tried not to lean left or right in this rant, 
So I'm in danger of being thrashed by both left and right, because centrists and moderates, who would rather see compromises and progress than slander by soundbite and division with gridlock, are not given to the sensational comments that bring media attention. Part of the status quo of the current state of American life is the crazy aversion to compromise and progress, the attraction to the sensational. In the media, we see personal attacks on or by candidates, or we see analysis of poll results rather than the discussion of ideas or platforms. How are you supposed to know what the candidates stand for? You have to become a researcher yourself, a good researcher of sorts. You, you've got to question attack ads or comments by your own party as well as the other. The current state of our judicial, legislative, and executive branch is not going to make any of this any easier. But this is supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. I'm pretty sure you and me both would like to see it continue that way. So what do you say? As the media blitz begins, can we take on the role of researcher? Can we dig a little deeper? Can we ignore the sensational and look for the real, the factual, and fact-check the factual? So when you get home tonight and get your dose of the fair and balanced situation room, try to remember that there are two giant monkeys pulling the levers, the red monkey and the blue monkey. Don't let them make a monkey out of you. Do your research, and for God's sake, vote with care. Meanwhile, I'm headed for the bunker. I'm tired of monkeying around. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer, appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author, having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back, Ellis. There was a time, I remember, in 2001, 2002, where people were really pitching, involved in Forex and money markets, were really pitching investing in the euro. And I think at that time, if you did invest, even today you've done well if you've held on to your euros. But while the dollar is really strong and the euro hasn't completely tanked, you know, the difference between investing in paper money and physical silver and gold at this point, how are we going to win? I mean, if you're a latecomer in investing in, in silver and gold and the physical metal, then you're probably not that happy. But if, you know, you got in about 10 years ago, you're still looking good. Let's say I've got some money, cash money, some paper, and I want to invest it. Where am I going to put it? For the record, I've actually made more money in the paper markets than I have in the physical market, which means if you got in on, let's say, you know, Silver Standard that we recommended at $0.65 cents Canadian, and I forget where it went, somewhere up to 30 or 40 I remember getting out around the $22 level because I did a video update for our members. And this is before Robert Quartermain left Silver Standard, but the chart was very clear. It was breaking through support. I said this is major, major support. When a company, a stock, a commodity breaks major support level, you absolutely must you know, sell. So we did. That would be like a 30-bagger or something. And we had several of those. What I did and taught, and some people did or didn't do it, was when we got these huge paper gains in the paper game, many times I converted that to physical metal. So in other words, silver might have gone from, let's say, the $5 level to the $14 level or something, or maybe a 300%. But some of these stocks were up tenfold, twentyfold, that type of thing. And so we would cash out, and I personally, and recommended at times to you know go into the physical market, so the leverage in the mining shares is extreme at times, both directions. When you're in a bull market, 
you can expect something like two, three times as much gain as you get in the physical market. But the same holds true on the downside. So I'd be remiss to say it's a one-way street. Certainly it is not. But I think it's important to realize that I've always taken the market on a balanced approach, which means that you should start in the physical realm. If you're a metals investor, you should own metals because that is devoid of any counterparty risk. And then if you're so inclined or have the ability or opportunity or wish to take on different risk-reward profile, then you can move into mine equities. I mean, if you put me in a court of law, set me down, took the oath to swear the whole truth, where is the most value? I would absolutely have to say the most value is actually in the mining sector. But that wouldn't be my recommendation because you have a counterparty risk. And no one knows how much lower this market is going to go. I doubt it's going much lower. In fact, I think perhaps silver did double bottom at the low 14 levels, but time will tell. We don't have enough data to know that yet. So, again, talking out of both sides of my mouth, but very sincerely so, that what it depends on the individual. If you're very risk-adverse, buy metal only, if you're willing to take the risk, you should seriously consider the mining shares and do it intelligently. Look at the top tier, the mid-tier, and the speculations. Uh, certainly for our members only, we have several special reports. One of them is called Archie's Rule. It gives you a good opportunity to evaluate a company whether it's worth investing in or not. It's an objective take on what the cash flow of a company is, what their margins are, and whether or not it makes sense to invest or not. And speculations are just that, speculations. So these are situations where you bet a little to win a lot. And this is what the main focus of the newsletter business is, and unfortunately it's not our main focus, although we spend a lot of time there, it's certainly an area that produces extremes. You can get some extreme winners and some extreme losers. And unless you know the timing of the market or the cycle of the market, when that part of the mining sector is appropriate to invest in or not, you certainly can reap some great rewards or really, really do yourself in. I mean, I have plenty of people that I've consulted with over the you know, last several years that are pretty disheartened. And not to say that the whole sector, the whole commodity sector is off, it is, but if you look at our top tiers, I think every one except one is still at a profit zone from where we recommended it. That is not true in the mid-tier and the lower-tier stocks because they have been decimated and somebody have gone out of business. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Silver Standard, and I, I can't get many broker friends of mine to show up for these luncheons that they have in Los Angeles regarding penny stock mining companies, some of the juniors. Few people want to participate in that. They got burned, but conversely, I think the smartest brokers here in Los Angeles and perhaps you know other parts of the country, they're investing right now in, in some of the top and mid-tier companies, and Silver Standard came up in conversation last week, and I remember a broker just saying, you know what, they're in. They're getting back in, and I guess you could say that the smart people are buying on these dips, right? Absolutely, and most people don't understand about the stock market is you want to buy the absolute best of the best. I mean, buying a junior mining company might produce some spectacular gains. It's like buying a lottery ticket. I mean, most of those companies, it's exactly what it is because you don't know what you're buying. You're looking at something that might take place in the future, and the odds are like 1 in 4,000 against you. Treated for what it really is. Whereas if you're looking at a top tier producer or near producer, uh, the top tier would be a producer, obviously. You're looking at, okay, they mine silver. 
all right, what are their margins? Because any other company that mines silver, you're looking for the best silver producer out there. You're looking for the company that makes the most profit. Now, having said that, I don't have time to go into all of the math. It's pretty simple to understand. If you read my first book, Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, I take a whole chapter to explain why if you buy like an out-of-the-money option, which means a mining company that is not making a profit, at today's silver price, for example, is highly leveraged to the upside when that silver price goes higher. Don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth. It's pretty easy to understand. If you're really interested in that, get the book or borrow it from somebody. I think the used ones on Amazon are next to nothing. You probably get the book for a couple bucks. It's well worth the read for just that portion alone that explains why you get more leverage. But back to your point, the smart money is moving back into the sector, but they're doing it as they always do, very slowly, very carefully, so as not to disrupt the market. These people know how to build positions, so they're not going to come in to a company like Silver Standard and put in you know, massive amounts of money in one day and drive the stock high only to see it fall back. They will nibble at it, nibble at it, nibble at it, nibbling for them as substantial shares for a retail investor, but they will do that until they have accumulated what they want. After the accumulation phase comes the markup phase, and then after the markup phase comes the distribution phase. And these are all clearly outlined in the charts, even though some people say technical analysis doesn't work. It's not a perfect science, but certainly if you know what you're looking at, especially when you combine it with volume indicators, you'll get a clear indication of what's really going on in the markets, and it doesn't apply just to super standard. This is across all markets. So this is something that, you know, I like to do. I like to teach. I show it on my video updates when I do it for my members of the website, something that pay attention to certain things worth giving that attention because certainly you can do better. You can be a better investor, a more skilled investor, or, you know, know when to be patient, know when to just wait it out and be patient. Certainly, you know, to be so self-criticizing. I've been patient <laughs> for this four years. I mean, I'm really getting tired of the price action in the metals uh, after four years. I certainly think that the fundamentals spell that there should be you know, much more activity in the metals and much higher prices in the metals than we're currently seeing. Use the word may, which is a cautionary word. May and probably and, and potentially. And it's always great to use those words, but instead of using that language, why wouldn't you say should? You should invest in that. Wouldn't you think that your words, don't you think that the, the, the people like yourself can actually help move a market with pure logic? Because all the logic that you've stated is pretty sound. And why wouldn't you invest in the physical metal when paper is fragile and eventually it will crumble? Well, great question. I mean, basically, it gets to pretty much my philosophy. And that would be, should means, would beg the question why, and why it gets into intent. And intent is, well, as you saw in his own book, well, I think it's pretty obvious I am. I mean, we are probably one of the top services out there as far as analyzing mining companies and resource companies. It's not just silver companies or gold companies. We've done oil companies and, you know, across the board, the commodities. So the intent is what is the other person's intent. Now, is why I would say could or would rather than should. But as far as, you know, if I had the ability to present it in a fashion where they had to take a test at the end of the lecture, you know, I got to grade it and I saw that they understood the concepts, that I certainly say should, because at that point they would know for themselves, not me telling them, but they would have learned the concepts for themselves. They would know to their innermost self that this is a paradigm that cannot last much longer, and therefore it's beholden to them to take the appropriate action, which would mean they'd have to escape the matrix. 
which goes further down the rabbit hole, which means they have to own physical metal. And that's something that, you know, in a context of an audio interview, it's pretty hard to do that. But conceptually, you bet they should. But to say what is the intent, the intent has to come from them, not from me. I just am a big believer in that, Ellis. Well, as long as you're not saying you should invest in a particular ABC company and list the name, should is a word that you can use. I don't mind David Morgan using that word. I wouldn't want me to do it. I, I'm no expert. I'm just a journalist. And let me move into another point related to this. I watched your video that you just released a couple of days ago through InvestorPitch.com, and the headline is, The 10 Largest Global Markets Are All Crashing. That's a big headline right there, and we may talk about that. But more importantly, for the purpose of this conversation is, you you mentioned platinum and palladium, and you mentioned why platinum's price corrected. <laughs> Let's use that word. And then you mentioned why palladium has moved up. You think the reasons for the decline in platinum and the uptick in uh, palladium are sustainable? And if they are sustainable with regard to palladium, uh, would you be looking for uh, palladium investments even in the junior space? Well, yes. I'll, I'm going to turn back the clock a little bit because we were actually big proponents of palladium back and I'm going to have to go from memory so my website members can criticize me on the blog but I think it was around this level I think it was around $700 level maybe below might have been 600 and we got very enthusiastic about Palladium and watched it go from that level all the way up to 900 and I did that video again for our website members about this is a pretty good place to be there aren't many opportunities to invest in palladium in the uh, stock exchanges although Stillwater Mining is probably worth a look it was structured in pretty tight share structure going back a decade ago but since the Russians moved in and I'm not saying anything negative about the Russians they saw an opportunity the company is not as tightly structured as it once was, but there aren't many palladium. I mean, North America palladium, I think they're out of business. I think they may be moving into the, you know, my little jokey story about the miners go to pot. But they may be going that route. I'm not sure. I'm just throwing it out more or less as a metaphor. But if you want to get in the palladium market, you don't have a lot of opportunity. There's some ETFs, and there's the physical metal and there's still water mining, and that's about it. As far as platinum is concerned, you have some of the South Africans, and they're really not making any money at these levels. Anglo-American is having very big problems, just like Glencore. So there aren't a lot of opportunities. If I were to ask, you know, what should you do if you wanted to do palladium, I would say it would be smartest to get the actual metal itself. As far as will it be sustainable or not, I'd say not until we get a good lift off in the gold market. Gold's pretty much the leader across the board, although the white metals sometimes give indications as, as give the subtle clues to start leading before gold really gets moving strongly. But between the two metals, the reason you have platinum going down and palladium going up is that platinum is used in catalytic converters on diesel engines, and palladium is used in catalytic converters on gasoline engines. And the idea now with this uh, unfolding of what's going on with Volkswagen on their environmental problems with the diesel engines is thinking out in the future that there'll be less demand for diesel, more demand for gasoline, and that means there'll be more demand 
for palladium and less demand for platinum, and that's why you see the discrepancy. Unless, of course, you're Cummins Diesel, and I believe their stock was up the other day. The need for those entrances isn't going to go away anytime soon, is it? No, I mean, just kind of a maybe a moot point, but I'll voice it. I mean, I drive a Volkswagen Diesel. <laughs> I own a Volkswagen Diesel. In fact, and I'm not, you know, people think of me whatever they want. I'm uh, trying to maintain myself. I mean, I try that just to be me. But, uh, you know, I bought that car gladly, not particularly because it had such low emissions. I thought that was a great benefit. I believe the company when I bought it, but I bought it for longevity and great gas mileage and something that I thought was engineered rather well. I mean, it's a very quiet car, and I've never seen black smoke come out their back, but nonetheless, it's very disheartening that, you know, we see this. But as far as going down that rabbit hole a little bit further, a diesel engine, being an engineer and having to go through, you know, not only the mechanical side, but on the aeronautical. So that's a very efficient engine, and they're very useful in certain applications. And unfortunately, Volkswagen has gotten much more than a black eye. This has certainly been a setback for the industry as, at large. But as far as just taking that subset of the diesel engine out by itself, certainly they're very, very useful. And the problems that have unfolded certainly can be solved, but it will not be something that's overnight, that's for certain. The headline, 10 largest global markets are all crashing. You have no problem using the word crash. <laughs> no, I do, absolutely. It's so funny because investment pitch has asked me to do these money and metals updates every week, and I get to them when I can. Almost every week I'm able to do one, and they put the headlines on there. Oh. I gave the facts. I mean, basically crashing, you know, I said it in the last book, Report, which is kind of interesting because if you're a paid member, you get a little bit different take on David Morgan than you'll get from these radio interviews. Not that I'm not trying to be consistent all the time, it's just that I don't have a lot of control of what headlines are posted because I submit my work and then the people that have the work can, uh, you know, they can put headlines on there that I don't necessarily think are appropriate. What I gave were the facts of the 10 of the biggest stock markets in the world, but what I said in the Morgan Report the month earlier is that to really get a quote-unquote crash, you have to see 20% down in a market. Now, some of those markets have crashed. I mean, just do the math, and I say it in that update. But for the U.S. markets, as an example, they have not crashed yet, although I've had people on the radio say, well, you know, use the word crash, and I did, and I said by the end of October – but we'll see. I could be wrong on that. So far, I am wrong, because we see, what, 10% or something. So, yes, some have crashed, some have not. Certainly, you know, Chinese market. I mean, I'd rather focus more on my expertise to come back to Glencore. I mean, that company, which trades, I think it's 80 or 90 commodities, is off like 77% for the year. That's a crash. And that's where the stalwarts in the whole commodities complex. And that's very worrisome for anybody that's involved because of the derivatives exposure that that company has. And they have derivatives exposure to big, major mining houses. So this is something that could be somewhat similar to the uh, Lehman Brothers AIG situation where AIG is sort of the big boy on the block, so to speak, that had to get bailed out so the derivatives didn't fail. And I'm not saying that's the exact analogy, but it's pretty close because this is a huge concern, a bit, you know, concern in both ways. It's a big, huge conglomerate, and it's very concerning how many ties go out, how many tentacles go out into the commodity complex 
and what the repercussions will be, and we don't know that yet. David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 